Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spires to kick this one up. Thank you to all of you uh, for the well wishes on the new house. Very excited about that. We went and revisited it. After I did the podcast last week, we went and revisited the house again with the kids who are absolutely enamored with it and did some measuring of the tarantula room. So I have a huge room now. It's about what we measured is about 22 feet, 23 feet by about 16 feet across. So more than three times the size of the one I have here. Now, again, this isn't going to be an opportunity for me to become a, a hoarder. I've got uh, my collections about as big as it's going to get for the time being, but it's going to allow me to do so much more as far as just being able to get them in larger enclosures. I've already been buying some enclosures to transfer things to some nicer ones because my goal has always been to have a room that I could walk in and be proud of at any given time. And although my room is functional now, it's, you know, with the, the sterilite, a lot of sterilite containers stacked up, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not as aesthetically pleasing to the eye when I do the YouTube videos because my goal has always been to do the videos in the room. And so hopefully that'll allow me to be able to have that as a backdrop instead of the static photo of the tarantula room because that was the only good angle I could get with my camera. Plus, again, having the podcast in there, I am counting the days I just had to stop a moment ago to because one of my dogs bumped into the other dog and startled her and she barked and there we go. We got to go, you know pause, go back, rewind. So anyway, just really excited about it overall. I'll keep people updated if it's something they're interested in hearing about, and I'll be posting some pics up of the play, of the new place pretty soon. Looks like we'll be moving in September. So a lot of change going on, a lot of a cool change, I think, but it's definitely going to be an interesting couple of months. Now, getting into the podcast for today, basically what we're going to do is respond to a couple uh, listener questions or just questions I've received by email or comment because I think sometimes these make a good podcast because these are usually if I pull one of these out, it's something that's been asked a few times. So it has relevance to people other than just the person who asked it. So it's a fun way to kind of go, all right, you asked this question, but so have a lot of other people over the course of the years. Let's address it. So the first one comes from Rick Peterson. Rick, how's it going, buddy? Um, he asked, what do you think about hoarding? Is it common? Here in Sweden, I see a lot of people buy a lot of teas and a few months they sell out and quit. Maybe not a lot, but a few. Didn't you have a podcast with this topic? Well, I think I always joke about being on Hoarders. I love that TV show. And the running joke around here is Matt Paxson's going to come in and tell me I have to clean up all my tarantulas. But uh, I do think by the nature of the hobby, there are probably folks that find themselves in a situation where they are hoarding. I think it's we all joke in the hobby that you can, it's addictive. It's incredibly addictive. You get one tarantula, and next thing you know, you have 30 tarantulas. Next thing you know, you have 100 tarantulas. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to that I get the email, hey, I just bought my first tarantula. I'm so excited. I'm looking at other ones now. Man, this is kind of scary. And I always warn them that this is an incredibly addictive hobby. And it's kind of done as a joke, but also as a legitimate warning that a lot of people get into the hobby and they get in over their heads very early on. In some instances, people get in over their heads. It ruins the hobby for them. I've been uh, privy to situations where people start with one, they get a bunch, suddenly they're overwhelmed, I, they'll have a bad interaction with one, they'll have an escape, they'll have one give them a hard time, a threat posture during a rehousing, and suddenly the hobby isn't fun anymore, they realize they're over their head, it becomes stressful, and next thing you know what, they're looking at moving their entire collection. I've been approached probably, not a lot, maybe three times over the course of the years by people who were asking me if I wanted to take their collection because they were no longer interested because the hobby was starting to stress them out, they really they had gotten too many. They were overflowing. One case, the person had to move an apartment and the collection didn't fit and it was starting to stress them out because they realized they had way too many that they could take care of. They had a couple deaths and they wanted to get them to some, somebody that they thought would take care of them. So 
Does it happen? Yes, and I'm guessing probably more than we actually know because of the fact that it's so addictive. You get somebody with that type of personality that could be a hoarder. Next thing you know it, they are buying tons of tarantulas. They're setting them up. They're not getting the care they need. And then you have a situation where it goes from being a collector. And I always, it's funny because Billy and I, and I've mentioned this before, we always watch hoarders and I always draw a line between the people that are collectors and the ones that are hoarders. And the ones that are collectors, it's a tricky one because I get that mentality. I've always been a collector. I've always had that in me with a lot of different hobbies where I've collected things, whether it be, you know, action figures, garbage pail kids, transformers, you name it. I've collected comic books, love collecting things. There's a you know, certain thrill you get when you find something you're missing. I, I totally understand that. But what ends up happening is you start to run out of room and then your collection starts to get a little more cluttered. And it, instead of becoming a nice display, it's a bunch of stuff in boxes stacked up in a room, taking up the whole room. That's when you start to slide over from the, I'm a collector to the point where it's getting kind of silly and you're becoming more of a hoarder. So I do think a lot of people that get really into the tarantula hobby do have that for lack of a better term collector gene in them where they like to you know try to grab all the different species of one genus or they're just trying to buy get one from every different genus or whatever it may be they find themselves amassing large collections and that's okay as long as they're able to hold up that standard of care and I've gone through this in other podcasts I think where it gets icky is when you're not able to to keep that standard of care that the tarantula needs that you want to give them and then you have situations where if you've been on YouTube long enough, this is where it becomes apparent and you can spot these these incidences where people have crossed the line into it's probably turning into a hoarding situation. You get the YouTubers that they feel like they have to because there's always that push to do unboxings. People want to see new stuff. They want to see what you're getting, new and unusual things that are going to get attention. And next thing you know, they go from having a little modest collection, you know, here are my 10 tarantulas, to they're pulling in different stuff every week. And then what ends up happening is you either get the videos, oh, I don't know what happened. My tarantula died the other day because it wasn't cared for properly. Or you get a situation where they bring something in and everybody asks for updates and you never get an update because the animal died a while ago and they don't want to admit it. And that's where I think it starts moving into a hoarding situation. I can think of one channel in particular where the individual, I won't say the sex or anything, because again, it's not about calling anybody out, but it's just I watched it happen was getting more and more things. You're doing tarantulas. Oh, now I'm into snakes. Oh, I got some mantids. And then all of a sudden it was death after death after death after death. I don't know what's happening. Well, what's happening is you're, you're over your head. You, you don't have enough time to care for them correctly. You didn't do any research. They just go out and pick stuff up. So it stinks because when you get into a situation like that, it leads to, you know, first, I think the first step is you're just getting bad care. But when you continue to buy more animals when you're not caring them for correctly, correctly, and then you amass a huge collection of animals that you can't care for correctly, correctly that's when you end up getting into that hoarding situation and luckily I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it but it does come up and I have been you know received emails from people who are you can just tell by some of the things that they're saying like they have some mysterious deaths and like in one case the guy's like yeah I had a bunch of mysterious deaths and come to find out he was talking about how he had 300 tarantulas he had bought a bunch somebody had a deal like he bought wholesale slings for one species so he ended up buying like 25 of one species of slings he was caring for that's a lot of slings to care for and then a bunch of adults on top of it and it was hard because I was trying to politely explain to him listen bud you're in over your head you want to kind of whittle this thing down and he wasn't having any of it he's like oh no I got it it's not that it's just I'm thinking maybe the closet I keep it gets too warm 
it wasn't the closet he kept them in. It was the fact that he just wasn't able to keep up with the husbandry. They were dying of dehydration. The slings were dropping like flies. He's like, I think I got a bad batch of slings. I'm like, nope, you got a, a batch of slings that aren't being cared for properly. There's a big difference. So I do think, and, I, and I've and i mentioned this before. I can't remember which podcast. It might have been one I did last year where we talked about the fact where people get overwhelmed with larger collections. I do think it's our responsibility as responsible animal keepers to make sure we never get to that point, to make sure we recognize if we're going overboard, to make sure that we recognize that we've gotten to a point where we can't care for these animals correctly. And Rick, in your example about people getting in over their head and getting rid of the collections, the only good thing is that's a responsible thing to do. If you recognize that you're no longer able, if it's causing you stress because you've got too many of them, and you've recognized that you're not able to draw that line, because I think with people with the hoarding personalities, there's you never stop. It's not like, oh gosh, I have too many, I've got to fix this. They just keep adding to it. Animals die, they bring in more animals. I think folks that are have the wherewithal to go, all right, I've lost a bunch. I'm not able to care for these correctly. I can't do this. I'm getting out of the hobby. Those are responsible ones. Those are the ones that are pulling the plug before it comes becomes a terrible situation. Unfortunately, I'm guessing there are a lot out there that never get to that point. I remember being back in a, a forum years ago, the Financial Keepers Forum, with somebody I interacted with, that it seemed to me this individual definitely was becoming a hoarder. They went from, I believe, I don't want to exaggerate, and it's tough because I try to go back and find this stuff so I have proof of it. But it was like in six months' time, went from getting their first tarantula to having several hundred and kept buying. Everything, every day must have a lot of income. And I, they had sent me pictures of their collection. I didn't think anything of it until I saw pictures of the collection. And it literally, it was just tiny little boxes stacked on tiny little boxes, rubber bands around them, basically stacked from floor to ceiling. It didn't look like a collection. It didn't look like a neatly organized, you know, again, I mentioned the Sterilite boxes in the beginning of this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They work great for tarantulas, but when you see them stacked 10 deep, that's an issue. So that was a situation where it's like, whoa, I remember calling Billy over and going, take a look at this. And, and kind of like, that's a hoarder, honey. That's not me <laughs> trying to defend myself. But that was a situation I remember being like, that's not good. That's not going to end well. They look like they were going to just teeter over. And I do think the other part of the hobby that makes it much more easy to become a hoarder is the fact that they don't take a lot of space and they don't need a lot of care. I think they're a lot more forgiving than other pets out there where they would start dying a lot sooner. I think one of the issues is you can keep them and little people will keep them in little tiny containers. So it's easy to get a bunch of little tiny containers, even ones that aren't appropriately large enough for the spider that you've, you're containing within and stack them all up and, and start amassing a huge collection. That's one of the problems. If you if you got another animal that you're trying to keep correctly and it requires a bigger area, you're going to be able to acquire less of them. So I do think that's it lends itself to it. I wouldn't be surprised, Rick, if there are a lot more folks out there you it doesn't get talked about as much, but I'm sure there are plenty of folks out there that find themselves sitting on tarantula hordes, which is very, very scary. Because if you think about it, if somebody has to go in there and eventually in these hoarder stories, if the person gets evicted or they leave the house and they leave the hoard behind, somebody has to clean those up, that's making national news. A house house of horrors, a house filled with hundreds of de deadly tarantulas, that's the type of thing that would reflect incredibly poorly on the hobby. So that always worries me. So yes, I do think hoarding is probably a problem. I, I've seen some examples of it going in my time in the hobby and my tenure in the hobby. 
I, I there's no way to really calculate because I don't think most people that are hoarders recognize themselves as hoarders, so they're not reporting it as such. But I do think it could be an issue. I do think it's something people need to be careful about, especially if you're the type of person that pack rats stuff and amasses huge collections of things and make sure that you never get to that point where it goes from being a fun hobby, where you go from being a collector where your animals are organized and well cared for and have the proper room and husbandry to a hoarder where you're just stacking new animals upon new animals, not caring for them correctly. You're having a bunch of mysterious deaths. You guys know what it would look like. So I do think that's an important thing to think of in the hobby. I do think it's probably more prevalent than we have evidence to suggest, but unfortunately it's, it's going to come with the territory. I just hope there's never one of those situations where somebody gets caught hoarding a bunch of spiders. I can't tell you how many times we watched the TV show hoarders and waited for that to happen. It never happened. But if that ever, ever were to happen, it is going to make national news. It is going to shed some, you know, an unsavory spotlight on the hobby. So that would be my take on that, Rick. And again, I, I've talked about before, I believe one of my earlier podcasts was about recognizing when a large collection is becoming unwieldy. And that would kind of lead into this topic where you have to recognize before you get to the point where you're a hoarder, when things are getting out of control and how to kind of rein it back in. All right, so for the next one, pet stores. Everybody knows I don't like pet stores as far as tarantulas. I don't think a lot of people like pet stores in the way they deal with tarantulas. Not to say, and I want to preface this only because it, it always, this is what led to this email, which is kind of, you'll see, is kind of funny, but there are some good ones out there. There are, I've, I've, And I love hearing stories about good ones, and I will have no problem supporting good ones, the people out there that actually know what they're doing. There's some out there where the people are actually in the hobby running the pet stores, so they know how to care for them, but... I I get a lot of people that are new to the hobby that hear that'll contact me like, hey Tom, I'm wondering, you know, about why does everybody hate pet stores so much? I bought my tarantulas from pet stores. I don't understand what the issue is, and you kind of have to explain to them why there is so much for lack of a better term, venom against the pet store trade. So I, I received this email and I'm, I've kind of condensed it because it was a long one and it was very nice and I did. I just want to make sure that everybody realized I'm not in any way, shape, or form trying to ridicule this individual. But the email itself, the stuff I pulled out of it, illustrates exactly what the problem is with pet stores. So here we go. This was from Bev. Hi, Tom. I recently had a wonderful experience at a pet store with my grandson. We picked him up a tarantula for his 12th birthday and the young man working at the pet store was very knowledgeable and helpful. He told us we didn't need a heat lamp like my grandson's beardy and recommended a heat mat instead. He also explained that the tarantula we were getting needed high humidity, which was something we didn't know, and recommended a mister to keep things damp. He was very helpful, and we now have boots set up in a new home, and she's doing great. Why are people in the tarantula hobby so anti-pet store? There are obviously some good stores and knowledgeable folks out there. So, I'm assuming some people are kind of giggling already because you see where this is going. Um, unfortunately, and I did have a wonderful conversation with Bev, and she was fantastic about it. So there's, And I will say Bev gets Grandma of the Year here. We've had a couple of them that have taken their grandsons out, in one case the granddaughter, and bought them their first tarantula, and the parents wouldn't let them have it, so they're allowed to keep it at their house, which I think is absolutely amazing. So let's not diminish that fact. However, this serves to illustrate my issue and most hobbyist issue with pet stores. As we go through this, now the... The way my website, this was one that they contacted me through my website. There's a place where you can fill out the species and the size. So I believe it was an avicularia, avicularia around two and a half inches to three inches or so. And I did get a photo of the setup afterwards and oh man. But anyway, 
this is a woman who went in trying to do the right thing. Now, again, I know we all say research, 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 but uh, it's very easy to hop online and do a search and get a bunch of misinformation. And in some cases, people assume that if you go to a pet store, they are going to know what they're talking about. It's it's not an unreasonable assumption to make that you expect a store that sells pets, that sells animals, to know about the animals they're selling. It's like when you go to a video game store, and again, this is annoying, but you'll get the employees that they're definitely video game players. They'll tell you exactly which games are good, which games aren't, and they'll talk your ear off because they know about it. And pet stores, you don't always get that. Or you get somebody that knows something about chinchillas, but they know nothing about snakes or reptiles or vice versa, whatever it may be. They're just, you. Ex- people go in there, and I know they get so much heat, and people will jump online. This is why I stay off Facebook because somebody will come on and say, I bought something at a pet store. Why would you support a pet store? Blah, 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 blah. Instead of just taking the time to explain to them why people don't like the pet stores. So as I explained to Bev and as people who are listening to this podcast have been in the hobby for a little while have probably already picked up, there are a couple things terribly wrong with this. First, I love, I'm reading this and he's like, yeah, she said it doesn't require a heat lamp like my reptile, I think it was a beardy or something. And I'm like, oh, thank God. But then you read the next one. So he went heat mat. No, you don't need a heat mat. And the species she's getting avicular, I'd asked her about the temperatures. They were in California. Their temps were already in their home. You know, as she says, she was an older woman. She likes it warm. They were in the high 70s. She doesn't need a heat mat. That's overkill. That's going to end up frying. You're going to have a tarantula that if you put it on the bottom of the tank, and the good news is they did put it on the bottom of the tank, so it really didn't impact the tarantula very much because the vicularia will go up and on the sides. But if you mount it like you would have to correctly mount a heat mat for a tarantula, which is on the side of the enclosure, you would have a hot spot that the tarantula would probably hug and not get off of and possibly get dehydrated. Just but you don't need them for that species with, you know, I, and I do talk to some people that, especially folks, uh, a lot of folks from Scotland, apparently the homes get pretty dank and cold during the winter times, the winter months, and there's like a lot of cold spots and they find themselves in situations where they have to figure out how to correctly use heat mats to make sure their collection doesn't get too cold. I understand that. But she had filled me in. She didn't need a heat mat, flat out. There was no extra heat needed. And what she ended up setting it up in was one of the Exoterra Nano Talls, the 8x8x12 Talls, which was a little bit large for the spider. The spider was kind of really swimming in it, which would have been okay set up. I'm not going to argue against that. But what they ended up with in the enclosure was some cocoa fiber on the bottom, a hubba hut, one of those carved, half-carved out tree branches, whatever, that you usually get for reptiles that I, I don't usually use for tarantulas. Some people use them. I just I don't prefer them. And no foliage, nothing to climb on. The spider, as you can imagine, ended up in the top corner underneath where they put the mister. Now, when he said they sent her a, sold her a mister, I thought he meant like a, she meant a spray gun. Like they were going to spray the thing off like people miss their tarantulas, which isn't awful. I know there's a lot of anti-misting people out there, but there are some people that have been keeping their tarantulas alive using that technique for years. So it, it can be used and not preferable as far as I'm concerned, but it, it works. No, that wasn't what he meant. She actually bought one of those reptifoggers, it looked like. The ones that are for like dart frogs and stuff, or frogs that you have. It kind of, it's a little setup that you put a, run a hose in and it pumps steam in at all times. So the inside of this thing was just, you couldn't even see it because there was so much condensation from this mister running. So it was a dank enclosure, a hot, with you know, obviously the heat mat underneath was probably causing some heat to come up. It was already a hot room, and this tarantula was basically huddled in the corner underneath the mister. And in our back and forth, she's like, I don't understand why you're saying I don't need the mister. It obviously likes it. It's right next to the, the nozzle to the mister. And I was like, no, it's it's using that for an anchor point because that's the only spot it has to, anch- to web up up close. It's giving it some cover. It's using that area to kind of create some cover. So after some back and forth, she got it. But Oh my gosh, she ended up spending, it was close to 200 bucks on all the stuff that they got, because obviously the, all the equipment's going to be overpriced. 
And the poor woman didn't need the fogger, didn't need the heat mat she got. And it was a really nice heat mat because the clerk at the pet store didn't know what they were talking about when it came to tarantulas. So this is why I think people get so upset. And I think I've given a lot of thought to this over the years. And I think the problem is tarantulas, most species of tarantulas, especially if you're dealing with slings or fossorials or boreals, most species of tarantulas, they're just not appropriate display animals in a pet store environment. If you're in a pet store and you're selling animals, you have to have the animals, they have to be visible. You can't go in there, point to six inches of dirt and a stir-like container or a critter keeper and go, yep, there's a beautiful blue spider in there called the cobalt blue. That's You're not going to sell that. Nobody's going to buy that. Nobody They want to see the animals. So what ends up happening is... To make, to make it so they're visible, they put them in enclosures that are completely inappropriate. So I can't tell you how many times, and this is one of the reasons why I'm handling this one or talking about this one today, it, is, it was a particularly rough week for getting comments on my YouTube videos about terrible pet stores. Like, I think we're up to six or seven. I usually get one every week or so, somebody talking about a bad pet store. And this time there was just so many of them. And again, we had two instances of, well, one was being sold as a tea blondie, which was actually a tea stermy on bone dry, the reptile substrate, the, the like the wood chips with a light lamp on it just looked terrible and miserable. We had the C. lividus, the cobalt blue, a case of one of those, again, kept dry, light, no water dish and crickets running all around it everywhere. It's, it's deplorable. It's, it's disgusting. It's, it's shameful how they keep them. So I get that the problem is I get that in order to sell the animals, they have to be able to show off the animals. But if that's the case, don't sell any of the ones that you can't keep appropriately like that. So that's going to knock off the avicularias when they stick an avicularia in this big open enclosure with just a little bit of substrate in the bottom. Crickets going all around it. It's webbed up in a corner. It's obviously completely stressed out. That's inappropriate. If you're doing a burrowing species, that's inappropriate. The C. libidus, they shouldn't be, A, they shouldn't be selling them because most people don't know what they're in for. Those are one of those species that people see when they're first blue spiders. They're usually rather inexpensive because they're still pulling in wild caught ones, if I'm not mistaken. They see them, they're like, oh, I want to have this. They have no idea what they're in for as far as temperament. In some cases, they've seen videos of people handling tarantulas. They think tarantulas are all cute and cuddly. They're like, I can't wait to handle my blue tarantula. They don't know about old worlds, they don't know that the bites are nasty. That sets up a bad situation. So I honestly think most pet stores shouldn't be selling the old worlds anyway. Not that this is ever going to, it's going to keep happening. Nobody's going to stop and it's been happening for years. But many of them don't even know enough to tell people, hey, this is not a spider you want to play with. This is not a spider you want to take out and show your friends and try to handle. It can put a hurt on you. Many of them don't even recognize that. So I... I think in an ideal world, in a perfect world, they would stick to selling, you know, well-established juvenile terrestrials that you could put on display. You know, there are species, obviously, the majority of your Fonapelma, your Brachypelma, Tlitocotl, your, all your, your Gramostola, your, your run-of-the-mill beginner species. Those are the ones they should be selling well-started, well-established, not slings, because again, slings, They've kept correctly. They're going to, the majority of them are going to burrow, and that's going to have a situation where the people aren't going to be able to, you know, understand why their tarantula is burrowing. That, it should stick to that in an ideal world. And that way, the majority of those setups where it's just a terrestrial with maybe a water dish and, you know, under, unfortunately under the light, but I've found that a lot of my guys will come right out with the light. They don't seem to care. That would be totally fine. But the issue is they don't do that. They don't care. And I think the biggest issue of all, and obviously this could be a whole podcast unto itself, but I don't want to sit there and bash the pet trade for another 40 minutes or whatever it's going to be. 
I think the biggest issue is they don't care about the animals. They see them, a lot of the people just see them as bugs and see them as an oddity, a curiosity to attract people to come into the store and check them out. I've been in places where people have flat out said, I don't like tarantulas, I don't like bugs. And they keep them because people come in and go, oh, look at that. Look at that big blue tarantula. And then they sell some. And then they come in and buy other things. So, I mean, honestly, I find it gross. I find it to be gross that you would carry anything that you don't have any respect for. It should be if you're a pet store, you should have respect for every animal you're selling, whether it be snails, whether it be salamanders, whether it be tarantula snakes. I don't care what it is. There should be a certain level of respect shown. But unfortunately, the arachnids don't get that level of respect. They're put there. Again, I've gone to reptile conventions. And this is something that I think it's a little better now because we actually have our tarantula dealers that go out there and represent ourselves well. And people that know the hobby, that know tarantulas, will speak up. But I've been to shows where people will bring, they'll have their reptiles and they have a few arachnids up there just kind of to draw people in. It's like, again, a spectacle, like a freak show. Like, look, we have this big giant spider. And hey, by the way, here are the are the snakes that I actually care about, know about. And then people will buy the spiders. They're coming from a reptile guy that really doesn't care if he knows what the care is for them, what the husbandry is for them, how to set them up correctly. They're there to sell you something. It's just a gross situation. So again, this isn't just to Bev. Bev, if you're listening, I I did introduce her to the podcast, but I don't know if she's going to listen to it. But I I do think that's why people are so anti-pet store. I would much rather buy from a reputable dealer. I've had people go, well, isn't it more stressful for the tarantula to go through the mail? Think about it. In a pet store situation, a lot of times they are pulled from wild-caught, they're wild-caught specimens that are captured. They're shipped over here. They go to a main place where they are shipped out to different pet stores. They go into the pet stores. After all that stress, they are now put in enclosures under bright lights with, in some cases, inappropriate setups with no hides, poor substrate. I've seen them on sand. I've seen them on bark. I've seen them on stone, aquarium stone and put on display for weeks at a time, sometimes months at a time, sometimes until they just die. That's a lot more stressful than a spider that is carefully and securely packed, which they feel very comfortable because they're in a nice little tight area, put in a box and spend maybe 24 hours going on a plane and then on a truck to your home. That's a lot less stressful overall. The spider was cared for beforehand. Hopefully when it gets into your hands, it's going to be cared for. And there's that one day. So No, I don't think it would be less stressful to buy them from a pet store. I think they go through a lot more torture going through a pet store than they do going through the mail or buying mail order, as long as you get them from good places and not like, I don't know, backwater reptiles, which is something we got to do a podcast on eventually because I've been getting more things about them lately, and apparently people still don't know you don't buy from backwater. So... So do I think pet stores get an unfair rap when it comes to their care of tarantulas and how they do it? No, I don't. I think most the exception is a pet store where you got somebody that's knowledgeable that cares about the animals. And there are good ones out there. I want to make that very, very clear. And there are, I have heard of instances of keepers going in and instead of just going, I'm never coming here again, talking to the person and having them be open to how to care for them. And I think that's an ideal situation when we're able to change people's mindsets, when we're able to use knowledge and talk to the people. And I have heard of situations, unfortunately, where people have approached the person in charge, either the owner or the manager and said, these are kept wrong. And they're like, we don't care. They're going to sell out. I think one of the stories, and if, you know, feel free to chime in. People want to told me this, but on one of the comments, somebody said they went up and tried to explain to the person that the way the tarantula was being kept was completely wrong. And they're like, it really doesn't matter. They sell it quickly anyway. And therein's the problem. We can boycott. And I think a lot of us do try to avoid pet stores. I know when I put my pet store video up, I try to explain my theory on it. I'm not going to go into it again, but it's hard to see an animal that's suffering and not do something about it. And the thought is, well, we all need the boycott. The problem is these, the ones that are being bought in the pet stores 
aren't usually being bought by hobbyists. They're being bought by people that have never owned a tarantula before and don't know anything about them. That's the issue. And until everybody in the world gets informed and on the same page, this is going to continue to happen. When you talk to pet stores, it's people will come in to the pet store, see this exotic animal, like, wow, look at this spider, know nothing about it and pick it up. Those are the ones buying it. We can go ahead and stop. We can all stop. The majority of people that are in this hobby right now, I would assume, and having spoken to many people over the years, do not purchase their tarantulas from pet stores. I know there is a YouTuber out there that's been doing a lot of pet store purchasing, but the majority of us don't buy a lot of them from pet stores. We order them from places online from reputable dealers. The people that are buying them are not, they don't represent the hobby. They represent people that are not in the hobby. They don't know anything about it. So that's one of the problems too, is there is going to always be, you know, it's supply and demand. There is always going to be a demand for them for people that walk in the store and go, wow, I need to grab one of these right now, even though I don't know anything about it. So that's why I think education is paramount. I think in situations where you see something like this, I know it can be difficult, but approach the owner, approach the manager, try to talk to somebody, talk to them and see if you can get them to change their husbandry, see if they're open to it. In some cases, again, they won't be. Other cases, they will be, and you can make a huge change. That's a lot better than walking into the store going, this is disgusting, walking out and going on Facebook and talking about what a terrible thing you saw. You're doing nothing about it. Going there, I've done it myself. It can be awkward at times, but the good news is, well, with me, it's easier because I'm able to go, yeah, hey, by the way, I kind of do a blog on these guys. I do some videos. I'd be happy to help and try to offer that up there. But that's the key to try to change some of the attitudes. Then when we get the ones that won't change your attitudes, then we put them on blast. Then we talk about, hey, by the way, this place and whatever it may be and Rhode Island will say is the guy was not open to changing. He's carrying tarantulas. They're kept terribly. And then we get word out. But I think we want to also promote the ones that are doing a good job. I think that's going to be important as well to get word out when there is a good pet store that seems to know what they're talking about, that buy good stock, that don't buy stuff from, you know, the wild caught stuff that know what they're doing, that set people up correctly, that don't try to sell them a bunch of, you know, extra equipment like heat mats and misters or whatever it may be. Those places need to be touted. Those places need to be talked up and those places need some kind of recognition. That might be a cool thing too. Is try to contact some, you know, get a hold of some people and do something publicly where I could actually go, hey, we're featuring a couple pet stores that have actually done a really good job. That might be something to think about in the future to just kind of promote the ones that do a good job. But Long and short, again, this could be a whole podcast into itself, but I just hate spending time doing all the negative stuff. I think the pet store problem, Bev, is the fact that they just don't treat our animals with the respect that we want them treated with. They treat them in many instances just like disposable bugs, and that's pretty sad. And on top of it, many of them will bilk people out of a lot of money by selling them things that not only they don't need, but they're actually detrimental to the health of their tarantula. So for example, selling them huge tanks, selling them heat mats, heat lamps, heat rocks, a mister, that was actually a first for me. Those are all things that with an avicularia, if you put that in a heated enclosure with just mist constantly coming in, you're going to have a dead tarantula in a month. That's a terrible environment for that species. So I think that's where people get upset is it's just that willful ignorance in many cases where they don't care. It doesn't take long to hop online and find, again, we've talked about how it can be tough to sift through stuff, but if you're going to sell an animal, you owe it to the animal to do the research and figure out exactly what it's going to need. And that really doesn't take that long in the scheme of things. If you have a list, if your vendor or your the person who sends you your animals sends you a list and there's tarantulas on it, 
do some research before you pick any of those up. I, I don't think that's that difficult. Or if somebody comes in and says they know about them, listen. Listen to what they have to say. Try to improve your care. Try to take care... Again, I don't get it because if I ever opened up a pet store, if I ever opened up and started selling something, you can be darn sure I'd know what I was talking about. It just seems like it, that would be a matter of pride to know that I'm selling these animals and I know about them. But unfortunately, some of them, I think, have just been led astray and believe that's what they, you know, they need a heat lamp. They need that, which means they just didn't do their research. Others, again, I think are just willfully ignorant they, or they don't care. They just don't care that they're selling. They're, as the guy said, it's only here for a week or so anyway, and then it can get all, go off and get taken care of correctly. That's a terrible attitude to have. So I think that's where a lot of the venom comes from as far as the hobbyists toward the pet trade is the fact that they do not respect the animals like we do. And that's really difficult for us to swallow. And for our final topic today, we're covering it looks like three. We're going to talk a little bit about males again. I know I covered this recently when talking about males and but it came up again on some comments with people. And unfortunately I think this is being this attitude in many respects is being pushed by some YouTubers and folks that do the the casual, when they do the, the, the breeding, they kind of drop the male in and let the male fend for itself. And when the male inevitably gets eaten because either the female wasn't receptive and they missed the signs or the male did his thing and they left them in overnight or whatever it may be, they just kind of go, well, that's what happens. That's the way of the world. That's the, you know, the circle of life. No, I, I, and again, I don't, people have asked me recently a, a lot and I don't know if it's, again, I don't watch a lot of YouTube anymore. So I have certain channels that I check out, but I look for ones when I look at breeding videos, they sometimes frustrate me because I'll see situations where somebody again will drop in the mail and they're playing with the camera and they're poking the mail and, and then the male, like you can see that moment where the female is going to eat the mail and they're just, Oh, it got eaten. Oh, and, but they got footage. They got footage that they can put forward. They can put it up online. And again, I'm not, I don't want anybody coming on and going, is this a YouTuber you're talking about? It's I've seen a lot of examples of it. Let's just put it that way. This isn't one person in in particular. It's kind of just a I don't know. I think it just comes down to a lot of people seeing other people do it and go, oh, that's okay. That's the way it works. Because I've had people inform me before, hey, you can just drop the mail and leave it there. That's what happens. No. Well, at least that's my opinion on this one. And again, I'm going to go into both sides of it. So here's the deal. Um, one of them said, what are your thoughts about letting males get eaten during breeding? I see a lot of videos where the YouTubers seem to not care if they lose the male during the process. What are your thoughts? This person asked that I not use their name because apparently they commented on one of these videos and, and I totally don't blame them. So I will not use your name. However, my thoughts on it, I, I, here's, here's an example I give people now that explains my thought on it and why I think this way. I tried to breed my Bumba Cabocla female uh, several months ago. I had a fresh male that had matured. I put the male in with her. We got everybody around the table with the camera, me sitting there with two paintbrushes ready to peel this girl off if she tried to eat the male. And basically what happened is they mated. She, he flipped her over on her back. He got insertion. She was trying desperately to eat him. I held down her front legs. He was able to scurry away. Now, fast forward a couple months, she lays her sack. It's going great. And then I come in and she eats her egg sack. Ugh. I have a second female that also molts out and is now mature. So now I have two females that after, you know, obviously the one with the sack, I had to wait for her to molt so that I could pair her again, but get them nice and fat and pair them again. I couldn't have done that if my male got munched. If my male got munched, I'm done. I can't talk about spreading genes. He's not going to get anything. This time he's getting two females. So I got to attempt the breedings again. And hopefully we'll see how it goes. I believe he got one of the females he paired with. 
uh, the, the same female I went to pair him with again. And this time, and I have video of this that I haven't posted yet, was my son Roan holding the camera, and he actually got startled and didn't catch the big scene where I actually rescued him. But he went to get insertion, and she curled over, fangs came out, and she was going at him, and I had to peel her off to keep her from munching him. It was like literally a fight. I had the paintbrush, one paintbrush hooked on her legs, trying to keep them from curling around him, the other one under her fangs to try to make sure that she didn't get him. And the male ended up getting away. And the good news with that is I could still pair him with my other female. So now I have twice the possibilities because that's one of the things. You can let them recharge and you can use them again. I also point up point out that I was able to breed my Caribbean Versicolor a couple years ago. That male was used in other pairings before he came to me. Had he been eaten, I wouldn't have had any babies. So I think what happens is people think, oh, yep, in the real world. And again, if you've watched a male waste away, it's a bad way to go. And I think for some people, they see the fact that when they get eaten by the females, that's going to be vital nutrients and creating a nice, big, healthy egg sac for her. A lot of females will eat the male and that'll be it. They go right into egg mode. They're ready to go. I totally get that. And there has been some research out there that has shown that females that eat the males tend to have larger, healthier sacs. I get that completely. I understand it. It's a compelling argument. However, when you can take a male and and breed it to two, three, even four females, that's spreading his genes even further. That's getting even more slings. That's bringing even more captive bred tarantulas into the hobby. Isn't that a better thing? I don't think the males should be thought of as disposable. I don't buy the... I find it lazy keeping when folks will drop stuff in there. And again, I'm not, I'm hoping every time I do something like this, somebody comes forward and it's like, oh man, I made a video when it got, I'm not, I can tell you right now, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. I've just seen a lot of videos and I've seen people where they've tried to intervene and they can't and not, and it, I've seen ones where it's like, there's nothing you can do. That sometimes happens as well. Let's not discount that. There are situations when I first paired my Hapalopus species, Columbia large female, B. Arthur, I love that name. Uh, she munched the male. She basically, as the male was inserting, she just came over the male and ate him. It was literally, uh, there was nothing I could do. Totally understand that sometimes there's nothing you could do, but to drop them in and like with reckless abandon, let the male go do his thing. Or in the situations which drives me nuts is when the female is obviously not receptive and they leave it in there or they prod the male into her so they get eaten. And it's like, oh, well, that's what happens. It doesn't always have to happen. Can it happen? Yes. Does it happen? Yes. Can it be a good thing if it happens? Yes. Again, she gets a good, nice, I was trying to explain to my son, like, why is it the females eat the males? And I was trying to explain that with many of these species, the males are perfect size for that coital meal, for you know, lack of a better phrase, where it's just enough nutrients they need, just enough of a jump start that now they're able to create their healthy egg sac. That's why they're like that. So again, it, does it happen in nature? Of course it does. Are there instances where the spider escapes in nature? Yes, there are. There are instances where the male is able to get away. The males, if you pair, you'll notice a lot of the males are always on their back foot ready to get the heck out of there. They're, if If it was totally supposed to 100% happen all the time, the males would just willingly go into the female's arms, copulate and then just kind of throw their legs up and go eat me and that's that sounds absolutely horrible but i'm gonna leave it in here um that's not what happens the males are trying to get away because again they're trying to spread their genes as much as possible so they get in they impregnate a female next step is if they can escape they can go find another female they wander around until they die or until they get snatched up and eaten whatever it may be so i think it's important for us to treat them with respect to try to protect their lives when possible to remember especially when you got males what really kills me is when you have males of a species that isn't produced very often I remember seeing video of, I think it was an H. Talensis that was being paired, the male, and they're usually not the most, you know, 
again, I think everybody sees them as such cute, cuddly little spiders. They figure they're going to be cute and cuddly with their boys. But in the situation, the male was basically left to die while the person filming fiddled with the camera. And then afterwards, people were like, oh, you did all you could. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. That's why you sit there and wait. When we do the pairings at my house, it's one of the reasons I don't post up a lot of pairing videos is because they're terrible because we don't have the lights on. We don't want to disturb them. So you have a low light situation. I will have Billy or Roan ready with the camera to kind of catch some of the footage only for myself or sometimes I'll throw it up on like my patron page or something. Just, hey guys, here's some of the breeding thing because it's not polished footage. But the idea is to make sure that the spiders are comfortable and that I am ready to intervene should the female try to munch them so that I can get that male either off the breed with somebody else's female or one of my other females or in some cases I've been able to repair them because the first time they paired the female molted out I've still got the male so I'm able to use the male again and when you do that you can't be holding a camera or worrying about getting a good shot you have to be ready to get in there and I think with people if you're still afraid of spiders biting or slapping then breeding is going to be a little bit difficult because if you want to try to protect the male, you got to be ready to get in the middle of some spider friction. It can be a little bit dangerous. And my trick is I have two very long paintbrushes that I use the wooden handles so I can hold them at the ends and I kind of get the handles around the female's front legs. And usually what happens is if I can hook those front two legs, when they try to curl over the male, they can't and the male is able to scoot out. And then I get the heck out of the way because you don't want them shooting up there. That is a a potential, you know, depending on the species you're doing, like piece Letheria, that would be a scary, luckily my piece Letheria, the attempted pairings that I've tried have been pretty good overall. The male usually gets away, but that would be a species you want to be careful with. Any, obviously, old world species, but I've done old worlds. I did my Mbalfori. I hooked the female. She couldn't tell if she was going for the male or not, but I didn't take any chances. I made sure her legs were out of the out of play while the male was able to scoot away. But in all those instances, I'm able to use the males again. So I think my opinion on it, and it has to be made clear opinion because it's not necessary. Somebody could easily come back with, well, I just want a bigger, healthier sack and this is the natural order of things. Okay, fine, whatever. I'm not going to argue with that. But my opinion on the matter is, You can get more out of the male if it goes to multiple females. You can get more out of the male if your female doesn't get paired that time. You can go back and pair them again. It's just a waste of life as far as I'm concerned. Does it happen? Yes. And I want to make that clear because I know somebody will come on and go, well, it's just sometimes that. Yep, it can happen. But we shouldn't just assume it's going to happen. We shouldn't just let it happen if we can intervene. So that's my take on the male thing. I know I've gone through this before, but it came up a couple times this week. And again, I got this comment that I wanted to talk about. I do think, unfortunately, what's happening is when you watch pairings on YouTube, the ones it's like a train wreck when the thing gets munched. It's like watching an accident in NASCAR. It's like watching the fights in hockey. It's like people aren't caught up in the beauty of the fact that you have these animals pairing. I, I guess it's beautiful. They're more caught up in the, is it going to get eaten? What's going to happen? And they watch it like they'd watch a horror movie. And when it gets eaten, it's like sensationalistic. Like, oh, look at it. My male gets munched at the end of the video. Woo! And, and that's sad because that creates that attitude that the males are completely disposable, that they're one and done. I wa- I read the comments of these videos and cringe because somebody will be like, man, you should have got in there and rescued that male. It could have been used again. No, man, that's just how nature works. They don't. That doesn't happen in the wild. You aren't there to break them apart. The male gets eaten. Not all the time it doesn't. And this, unfortunately, and I think this is a, a podcast topic for later on, comparing, you know, we've, uh, we've spoken before about trying to compare or try to make things too realistic at home compared to what's in the wild. Like we kind of get lost in, well, this is the way where they come from. This is what life is like there. We've got to emulate that as much as possible in our own collections. And I think sometimes that leads us into trouble. This could be one of those situations where we look too much at like what goes on in the wild without enough information because I do believe 
believe, and I have talked to people that have said in some cases the males escape. It's not inevitable. The big one is like black widows. A lot of people talk about the black widows, how they, you know, they're called black widows because they kill the males. Well, I remember reading a paper a while back or some type of research that said the males more, a lot of times escape the black widows because they're not contained. When we mate in an enclosed environment, when we put two tarantula, large tarantulas in a small enclosure, guess what? The male doesn't have many places to go. In nature, the male's on his back foot, the female goes to munch him, boom, he's out of there. He bolts. In our enclosures, the male goes to go out of there, ends up hitting a wall before he can get up the wall, the female grabs him and eats him. So those are things we need to keep, you know, keep in the back of our mind that raising these tarantulas in our homes, in a captive environment is a lot different from being in nature. And sometimes the same rules shouldn't and don't apply. So please try to protect your males. That's my theory. I'm sure people come in and feel free. We can have a nice healthy debate on it. I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to change opinions. And I do recognize that this is an opinion of mine. It is not fact. I don't want people thinking I'm telling everybody this is it. But when people ask, what is your opinion on this? I do have a strong opinion that I think for breeding purposes, it makes more sense to have those males live, be able to pair the female again. If you only have one female, be able to go out and pair other females. If you know people that have other females, especially with those harder to find species. So that will do it for this one's right around the 40 something minute mark and my back is killing me sitting in this chair plus my dogs have been fairly well behaved this time around so I'm not going to push the envelope any and see you know how long they'll keep quiet for. As always, you can find me at tomsbigspires.com. You can find me on YouTube. I just posted up that uh Zenestis video with all the ones I got from Fear Not from Billy for Father's Day which it was a bunch there so anybody who wants to check those out I'm particularly enamored with that genus right now they're just such cool spiders so for those of you that have been telling me for years Tom you need to get these and I'd be like eh whatever I get it now I totally get it now you're right I, I totally was wrong on that one I should have gotten ones earlier but that'll do it from this one as always stay safe guys and we'll catch you all next time